We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Just a couple verses of that. And I basically have four things to say about it. So, let us turn there. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did I say 1 Corinthians? I did. Well, I, re- I referenced 1 Corinthians 1 in my, my sermon, uh, but I'm not going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 1, so thank you. This is the, the debut of my glasses in public, so please have mercy upon me. My eyes are getting old. Hear the word of our God. We proclaim Him, meaning Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. It's hard to believe it was so long ago that I was given an assignment in seminary, you know how mission statements and are, are all like in vogue back then in the mid-90s. And uh, well, that's what my, my professor did. He wanted us each to come up with a mission statement for our ministry. And uh, I just felt I could do no better than this text this morning. Fast forward to my phone interview with your search committee. And I was talking with them a little bit about the gospel transformation that, that is in the, the website as part of their, their mission, their goal, how they understand themselves. And so I asked about that, and I believe it was Marty who responded, that reflects our aspirations, not where we are, but where we want to go. And as I look back upon Colossians chapter 1, it still is an aspiration. It's still where I want to go because I recognize I have not arrived there. I'm still a work in process, and the congregation is still a work in process. But this is, in a sense, a big-picture view of of where I would like us to be moving, so to speak, or how I understand this whole process to take place. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. The big idea for this text this morning is that Jesus is the message, is the goal, is the power of wise gospel ministry. Context a little bit here is that Paul is writing to a church that he did not plant. It was planted by a a man named Epaphras who probably came to faith under Paul's ministry in another city. And then he went back to Colossae and he planted a church, preached the gospel, gathered people, established a church. What had happened was that after all of this, some other men had come in and had begun to teach other things and had begun to disrupt the life of the church in Colossae. And so uh, this false teaching has meant that essentially Epaphras has left and he has gone to be with Paul and Paul is essentially writing in response to what he has learned from this man Epaphras. That sets it up, I think, enough. Their false teaching was meant to supplement the gospel and we're not exactly sure how, but I think it shows up in a lot of the things that Paul says that he repeats and phrases Let's get going with those four things or I'm going to run out of time. The first is that the message of gospel ministry is Messiah. Paul starts right there in verse 28 with the idea that I, or that we rather, proclaim 
him. So it's not just Paul, but his whole ministry team and the rest of the apostles do this. What was taking place there in Colossae was that there was a promise of a greater fullness. That's one of the words that you keep seeing popping up in this letter. Fullness, greater power. Somehow this idea that they were the, the blessings that were meant for heaven are actually, these guys are teaching them as meant for now. And so there's what we theologians would call an over-realized eschatology. It just means that they're taking things that are meant for heaven and they're saying, oh, you can have all that now. Sounds familiar today when we think of a health and wealth gospel. That's really basically what they were trying to do. We see that same thing taking place in the church in Corinth. So you can imagine why my brain went to Corinth. A lot of the same problems are taking place. And when they talk about this fullness, we, we can read between the lines of what Paul is saying here because this fullness seems to come through, it seems, rituals because they talk, he talks about circumcision here and they're seeing, understanding that some of that fullness comes through rituals, but some of it also comes through this asceticism, rule keeping, keeping uh, special holy days that Paul talks about in here. Uh, they, that is tied in with this fullness that the false teachers were offering to the people, the Christians of Colossae. But not only that, but there was this idea of mediators between them and Christ that they had received visions from angels that they somehow needed someone besides Jesus to go to the Father for them. All of these things may sound a little foreign to us in some respects, and yet we, we see them at, at, taking place in a lot of elements in American Christianity today. Uh, I think of we, last night we mentioned Todd Bentley. Okay, I, I live in Polk County, Florida, which is sometimes called the land of a thousand lakes. It, it also seems to be the land of a thousand heretics at times. Uh, because there's all, Lakeland, Florida is the center of so many revivals that take place. And one of the most recent one was with Todd Bentley, who claimed to have received messages from angels. Okay? So something is coming to supplement scripture that was authoritative. That's very similar to what was happening into this church. These men were claiming have messages probably from angels to supplement what they had heard from Epaphras. Paul's message in the midst of this is that we are to preach Christ because Christ alone is sufficient. He alone is enough. He is the one who is able to address all of the problems that exist in the people's lives. It is Him. And so Paul proclaimed the Messiah. He related all things back to Jesus and the gospel, what He had done for us. Gordon Fee has said that in Paul's hands, everything becomes the gospel. And by that, he means what we see in Paul's letters is that Paul hears of the problems, and what he does is he brings up the relevant aspects of the work of Christ and applies them to their situation, whether it be divisions, whether it be finances, whether it be questions of problems in marriage, whether it be questions of conflict within the church. All of these things, he does not answer with worldly wisdom, but he answers with what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so he doesn't offer seven steps to a healthy marriage, what he offers is Christ. Why is Jesus enough? He is enough because earlier in this letter, Paul talks about him as the all-powerful creator and redeemer. He has all the power that we need. 
to put our lives back together again. He is the one who has made us. He is the one who can keep us. He has the one who has redeemed us, saving us. So why would we want to go to someone else? Imagine for a moment that you are in a business and there's a problem that pops up. You're visiting a business. You know the owner. Do you go to the janitor? You know? Can you tell the boss what's going on? No, you have direct access to the owner. You go to him. I'm a Red Sox fan, as you guess from the little thing up there. Imagine for a moment if I, if I knew Theo Epstein or John Henry, the GM or the owner of the Red Sox. Imagine if they were going to the ballpark one day and they found me trying to scrounge up tickets from a scalper. Well, that would dishonor them because they would say, Steve, why didn't you give me a call? I would have brought you into my suite. That's what we do when we look for other mediators, mediators instead of Christ, the one God has provided. We insult his glory and his honor and his grace when we do things like this. And so that's what they were doing there in Colossae. He is also enough, precisely because as Paul says in, in verses uh, chapter 1, 19, and in chapter 2, verse 9, the fullness of God dwelt in him. There is nothing that the Father had that the Son didn't have. The fullness. They wanted fullness? I'll show you fullness. Jesus has the fullness of the deity dwelling with him, in him. And so, as a result of this, if we need wisdom, if we need reconciliation, not just with God, but with one another, if we need protection from enemies, if we need love, where is it found? It is found in Christ. It is available to us by faith in Christ. And so Paul was utterly satisfied with Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. Are we? Is that enough? Or or do we have to somehow add something to be satisfied, to be found complete, uh, to be made whole? Sometimes we think we do. All of us do that. We wrestle with that. As John Calvin said, you know, man is a factory of idols. We, we all think we need something else to somehow complete us and to make us whole. But Paul reminds us repeatedly it is Christ that we need. And so we find that the glory of the gospel in verse 27 is that Messiah and his fullness dwells in us. Not just in heaven, but he dwells in us. Okay, so the message of gospel ministry is Jesus and his work are sufficient for you. Second part of this is the means of gospel ministry, which, you know, how does it take place? And that would be wise instruction. Paul starts off, we proclaim or we preach. Eh? Paul preached to, uh, corrected and taught everyone. We, we, and he says that, that as well, to all men, to Everyone, And so this is not something that is just for a few, but it's something that all of us need who are in this room. But it is not just something that all of us in this room need. It is something that every person in Tucson needs, in Arizona, in the United States, and in North America, 
and in the Western Hemisphere, and indeed the whole world. Everyone needs this. One of the issues that we talked about yesterday uh, over here uh, after brunch, someone asked for a 90-second definition of the Marrow controversy, and so we talked a little bit about that. And, and what the Marrow controversy was was that there were some people in the Church of Scotland that were trying to say that you only give the gospel or Christ to those whom you think are elect because they, should, they have come under conviction of sin. And Paul would say, are you nuts? Everyone. We are to proclaim Christ to everyone without distinction. We don't wait until they somehow magically show signs that they should hear the gospel. It is for them the general call of the gospel. And so proclaiming or preaching is a mostly public ministry of the, of the word. Okay? But it's not just something that pastors do. We sing it, don't we? And that's been one of the, the nice things of, of uh, when I've been able to worship with my family the last couple of years, when I haven't been out somewhere preaching. I get to hold one of my kids. And I get to sing the songs. And I think in my mind, Lord, let them believe. Because I'm proclaiming Christ to them as I sing in their ear, however horrible my singing may be. They're still hearing truth. And so I cry out to God, let them believe. Make them believe. That's one way it can take place in addition to being up front like this. But Paul says he also admonishes, he, he warns, he instructs, he corrects people. And so it's not, not, not enough just to make known the, the general truths of Scripture, but we are also to apply those truths specifically to people's lives, and sometimes they need to be warned or instructed. It means basically kind of getting into another person's life, getting into the mess of their lives and helping them to see how Christ matters with what they're dealing with. This is more personal ministry. This is getting really specific about applying the gospel. This is part of what should be taking place in small group ministry. People bringing up, man, I'm really struggling with what we're talking about and encouraging them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, showing them how Christ matters in that situation. So this is, unfortunately, a very difficult work, precisely because it is met with great resistance. I'm a parent. What do you think happens when I instruct my kids? Does it, you think it goes well? No. There's crying and there's all, there's all kinds of mess. It's the same thing with adults. Maybe not crying. But defensiveness and anger can often accompany this. So this is not an easy task. And it takes the courage that is found only in Jesus Christ to, to begin to go, to, to learn that we not, are not to fear men, but to fear God. And to humble ourselves and make ourselves vulnerable and communicating with people where the gospel matters in their life, but in a way that they may not want to hear it at that particular moment. But not only does Paul proclaim and admonish, he also teaches, which is sort of a, both of a public and personal ministry. And as opposed to correction or admonishment, this is much more positive. This is sort of laying out doctrine, so to speak, what we were doing in Sunday school this morning. 
more constructive. But it's not for pastors alone. Look for a moment at chapter, six, chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart towards God. Which is interesting because this is a parallel uh, verse to what we find in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul is describing what it means to be spirit-filled. He he mentions the, the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart and submission. Well, one of the other aspects to that would be uh, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. If we're filled with the Spirit, we will be in, that's one of the things that we will be engaged in. And so it is something for the, the ministry of all Christians, not just for uber-Christians, not just for pastors, not just for elders, not just for deacons. It's for everybody. It's for all of us to partake in. Now, Paul does this, he says, with all wisdom just as it talked about in verse 316, with wisdom. It's knowing when we proclaim versus when we must admonish versus when we must instruct. It's knowing how to communicate with the person, what it is that they need at that particular point in time, so it really is addressing where they are. It's being able to assess. But wisdom is also essentially the practical application of sound doctrine. That's really what it is. That's wisdom. The practical application of sound doctrine. We see this even in chapter 1 of Colossians. Uh, Let me see if I can get the right place. Because Paul is praying for them. He prayed that they would have wisdom. And I thought I had it. Yeah, asking God to fill you, verse 9, with all knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that, okay, the purpose of him praying for them to receive spiritual wisdom is that they may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. Wisdom. Is about how to walk with God. It is about living in a way that pleases and honors and glorifies Him. And so Paul prayed that they would have wisdom, and part of how this wisdom is displayed in our lives is that we proclaim and admonish and instruct one another. And so the means, how gospel ministry takes place, is this wise instruction in the Word of God, which testifies about the living Word of God, Jesus Okay, third thing, the goal of the gospel. What are we shooting for? What direction are we moving in? That's maturity in Messiah. It's not just about mere information transfer. I mean, we can, we're Presbyterians, right? Most of us, anyway. Uh, some of us have kind of stumbled upon this by accident from our perspective, but not God's. Uh, and as, into, as Presbyterians, we tend to be very intellectual about our faith. Okay? I'm there. I can be that way. That's not what Paul is shooting for. It's about something more than just an information dump. It's not like, you know, the Matrix where you just attach and I want to know how to fly a helicopter. Boom, I got it. You know, it's about learning how to fly the helicopter 
actually doing it. But we can often get off track and, and mistake knowledge for maturity, which is where Paul's going to go with this. And I think back to when I was still in college. I'd been a Christian for about two years. I was uh, working a little bit with Campus Crusade, and the leader of the, of the ministry team there pulled me aside one day, and he was meaning to commend me. I don't know why. And he said, you, wow, you've only been a Christian for two years. You're so mature. He was confusing the fact that I read a lot <laughs> and knew a lot with maturity, because I wasn't mature. I was just well-read. Okay? Maturity comes as we are practicing the truth, not just knowing the truth, but believing and acting upon the truth. And that's what Paul has in mind uh, in this letter to the Colossians. What we see uh, is that Jesus works in us, Okay, not only did Jesus work for us in, his, in, his, in the, his death on the cross and His obedience in our place, but now by the power of the Holy Spirit, He also works in us through the ministry of the Word to make us mature. Or, in other words, He's applying that which He did to our lives so that we become different. Not only does He work to justify us, but now He works in us to sanctify us, to make us like Him. That's the goal of ministry. So I, I'm, I'm, I want you to know stuff, but more importantly, I want you to become like him. Paul talks about that in that sense of, um, I need to get back to, that, I, that we may present everyone perfect in Christ, is what he says there in uh, verse 28, which is strange because earlier in this letter, Paul talks says this in verse 22, But now he, Christ, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So on the one hand, he's talking about uh, you know, Christ presenting us before God holy and blameless, and yet here he then says, I'm working to present you holy and blameless. Okay. Jesus, in our justification, presents us holy and blameless without accusation before God. But now Paul is working, laboring, not only that they might be justified, but as I said, they might be sanctified. They might personally become righteous because of the the work of the indwelling spirit that they may learn to say no to ungodliness and live upright and godly lives in this present age, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2. And if you hang around with me too much, you'll hear me say that one a lot. Okay, I'm used to saying that text from Titus chapter 2. And so, it's maturity, it's sanctification. Now that word perfect can mean perfect, but it has to do with this idea of the end. And so, maturity is probably, or complete, is probably a better phrase or, or translation for that text is that Paul is working that he might present them mature in Christ because we see this again in his other letters that he might that Christ might be formed in them what does this look like in some ways think about generosity for a moment why does God want us to be generous well Ultimately, it's because he is generous. 
He is gracious. He is kind and compassionate. In fact, we find in uh, Corinthians, Christ, who was rich, made himself poor that he might enrich others. And so when we want to talk about generosity, we want to talk about it in light of the reality of of who Christ is and his generosity, his willingness to impoverish himself to make others spiritually rich. And so if we're going to become like him, what's he going to do? He's going to make you willing to impoverish yourself to make others spiritually rich. That's one of the ways in which the gospel functions in our lives and addresses who we are that we might put to death our greed and open our hearts in love to others. That's just one way. That's a picture of what it looks like to become like him. And so he applies his work for us to make us sanctified as well as justified. So the goal of gospel ministry is to see people mature in Christ. Fourth and last thing. I feel like this, has this been a roller coaster ride? Am I going too fast? Okay. All right. Some of you are going, I missed that. What was that? Okay. So Jaden's, Jaden's keeping up with me. So if Jaden can keep up with me. The power of gospel ministry. The power of gospel ministry comes from the victorious Messiah. Gospel ministry is no easy task. Paul talks about the struggle, which this word can mean to work hard, to become weary. Are you tired yet? It's a good thing if you are. Because Paul was. Because gospel ministry is so amazingly difficult. And we'll hear why in just a little bit. But Paul not only says that he struggles, but this idea of agonize. And basically, yeah, if you look in the Greek and you just transliterate, it's agonize. The idea of engaging in a contest, a fight, or a struggle. And Paul recognized that he was in a conflict with the flesh. He was in a conflict with the world, which had upside-down values. He was also in conflict with the evil one, Satan himself, as he sought to do ministry. It's not just his own flesh, but it was also the flesh of those he's ministering to, a sinful nature. We agonize. Paul says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that... He agonized over the Colossians. Now you're like, he doesn't even know the Colossians. He agonized in prayer. That's how he starts this whole letter. He says, ever since I heard about you, I have not stopped praying for you. And so Paul was exerting himself greatly on their behalf, struggling and fighting for them through prayer. We see this again in chapter 4, verse 13, when he speaks about Epaphras himself who agonized himself on behalf of that church. He wearied himself for the well-being of those people. So ministry is not for the timid or the tame. It is for those who are made, made courageous by Jesus. But here's the good part of the news. <laughs> he energized or operated in Paul. 
In other words, he was at work. He was making effective the, 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 uh, what Paul was doing, the actions of Paul. Jesus is the one who energized Paul. Jesus, the resurrected, all-powerful, victorious Messiah who has overcome all of his enemies, as it talks about later in this letter. He is the one who lives in us and empowers us to do the things he wants to do through us. Sometimes we think about this wrongly. Work at a hardware store, so maybe Dick will be the only one who will get this one. But uh, <laughs> I think most of you guys will get this, and uh, most of you women will as well. Okay? If you have a cordless drill, okay, what do you do? You plug it in. You charge it up, or, okay, your cell phone, either way. <clears throat> you charge it up, and then you use it. That's how we tend to think about ministries, that we need to go get charged and then, so that we can be used. But instead, it's, it's more like a hybrid vehicle where the battery is charged while it's moving. While the gas engine is, is creating some energy, the battery is being charged. When you put the brakes on, the battery is being charged so that you can then run off the battery. That's the picture. Because the picture is one of being energized as you're being agonized or as you are agonizing. And so Christ comes and works with us, not, not because we wait and sat until we felt strong, but He strengthens us even as we're weak. Even as we're laying ourselves out doing these things. You see this in lots of places in Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul's talking about the trials that came upon him to the Corinthians. He said all of this took place so that we would no longer rely upon ourselves, but upon the one who raises the dead. That's the hard part of ministry, the humbling that takes place because you realize you are not sufficient. Not sufficient. Okay? If you're expecting Jesus Jr., you're not going to get him. Okay? If you are expecting me to never disappointment, disappoint you, it's not going to happen. Okay? I will disappoint each and every person in this room. Ask my wife. You'll know. Ask my daughter, you'll know. Okay. And yet, it is in the midst of that weakness and frailty we see that the treasure, as Paul says in another place in Corinthians, is found in jars of clay. The power is really in him who works in spite of us sometimes. I love the confession. When it talks about Christ working above, against, and without us. I'm responsible, and yes, it doesn't, it doesn't depend upon me. That great mystery of, the, of what God does in His providence. <clears throat> so gospel ministry is straightforward, but hard work. It makes Jesus known in appropriate ways so that people might come to faith in Him and then become like Him. And as we do this, we are to rely upon His power, not our own, that he might continue to get all the glory as the almighty Savior and Sanctifier. Why don't we pray? 
Father, You are well pleased with Your Son, Jesus. You have glorified Him as the Savior we proclaim. You glorify Him as the goal of our maturity and as the victorious Messiah who empowers us in gospel ministry. And so I ask that You would help us to be well pleased with Him, that we might fix our eyes on Him and be transformed as we gaze upon His glory in the gospel. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is indeed the Savior of sinners and the sanctifier of saints. Amen.